everybody. It's another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, and I think I mean it this time. We've got uh, Will and Derek, and we're going to have special guest Bud Moeller, who's a uh, vintage racer of some pretty unique and exclusive machinery. will be joining us here in a few minutes, so be calling in. What have you guys been up to lately? Be why we're waiting for Bud. Oh, man, here at the Big Oak, we've been um, pushing on the Scotty D SSUV getting it ready to go to Knoxville to get the uh, twin turbo six liter shoved over in it. Just tied up some loose ends on it, getting back in the rhythm after Scottsdale and getting ready to, you know, start looking at what car shows we're going to attend this year. I saw Scotty D on uh, or some of his Facebook posts and that, even at your shop holding some pretty big hair dryers and that, I guess you're sticking in or wedging <laughs> under that hood. Oh yeah, I, I forgot what what millimeter they are, but they're they're pretty good size. We're you know we're not really upgrading the the trans and differentials at, at this point in time, so we're gonna keep the numbers down pretty low. We're gonna put a really soft tune in it and get it all kind of dialed in, and then this time next year we'll go in and build the transmission and drive shafts and differentials and uh, axles and all that stuff because it is a, it is an all wheel drive Denali. So we we can bump the power up a little bit and have a uh, killer street Denali to, you know, drive to SEMA instead of fly to SEMA or go to all the car shows or for Scotty to go to all the car shows. Generally, I'll be in the dually pulling a trailer. There'll be some that we definitely go to together. And so we're, we're really, really looking forward to the Denali for, for Scotty D. What about you, Derek? Nice. Nice. Uh, I, I've, I've been sitting quietly behind a desk waiting for Will to stop talking. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, waiting on no, waiting I've for been NASA to call, waiting for the government to reopen. And guess what it <laughs> did? And NASA called me and, uh, we will actually, uh, as you're listening to this on Monday, uh, we are currently installing the NASA exhibit. <laughs> so hopefully by the end of the week, Friday, February 15th, uh, we will have the entirety of the NASA exhibit opened at the Corvette Museum. So uh, that is a relieving part of my job. Other than that, just been working a lot, um, extra time here and there. We got a lot of big projects going on at the museum. Of course, museum celebrating its 25th anniversary. So there's uh, events happening over Labor Day weekend that we're getting ready for. Just a, a lot of time at work, not a lot of time in the garage. So it's starting to warm up. Here again in Kentucky, we had our two weeks, three weeks of winter, and uh, I think we're on the upswing for a warm-up, so start getting into the garage again and, and maybe, just maybe, get some more work done out there. So, Well. That's that's really all I've been doing, honestly. That's, that's about it. And I thought you said earlier this week that you were kind of busy and you're losing track of days. It sounds like you've just been relaxing. Oh, yeah. I yeah. tried to provide you a little bit of a career advice there. And I said, you know, you just stop working <laughs> and it frees up your schedule. And uh, to let the listeners know, it's kind of the first time I'm going to say it publicly. That's what I did. I stopped working. Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, going to pursue some of my own endeavors in that. And I've left the museum. We're going to see what happens. I'll fill you in as the podcast goes on. But. At this point, I think you could probably say I am peacefully unemployed and will probably remain that way until the LLC is formed and I can give you some further information on the new endeavor. And it's car-related. 
Oh, it's not woodwork? Amazingly, I've got a couple pieces done in the wood shop already and looking at some more and kind of get up in the morning and trying to get my bearings and read some news and that that are relating to the the new venture. Uh, Then I go out to the shop for a little bit and do some woodworking, and then I come back in and work on contracts and the business plan and some things like that, then make dinner for the family, and I'm kind of a Mr. Mom uh, Mrs. Doubtfire type person for a while, and it feels pretty good. <laughs> I guess that's ideal timing. Uh, it looks like uh, we've got Bud on the line right now. Let's see if we can connect him a little bit better than we uh, did Eric last week. Bud, are you there? Hi, guys. Nice nice to talk with you. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Kind of the first time I think you and I have ever talked, and definitely Derek. I know we've had a lot of social media conversations over the last couple of years. It's amazing to me that somebody as busy and as prominent as you is right there. I mean, even when I reached out to you for this uh, interview idea I had, you were you were responded within minutes. You, you must have some massive time management skills. I am pretty good at it uh, with all that I've got going on, but uh, more importantly, this is my favorite topic to talk about. So you caught me at a good moment, uh, my favorite things. So of course, we had to make it happen. And to fill the listeners in, you know, we'll talk, mention a little bit, is that, you know, Bud enjoys uh, vintage racing and cars and some pretty cool cars. Everything I see about Bud online and that always talks about his work. And we want to talk about the fun. Do you want to give us a little bit of background? I like to let the guests kind of give their own bio and update our listeners uh, who, who don't know you. And we've got some questions we definitely want to cover with you, though. Certainly. Well, from a work perspective, professional perspective, I was a management consultant for about 25 years doing strategy and corporate transformation for global companies. I lived and worked all over the world with uh, many multinational clients. Uh, But in parallel with that, I was uh, racing cars and have been racing either amateur professional or vintage for 31 years. So longer than my professional business career. And this keeps going. What got you into vintage racing and that was, well, we'll start, we'll start a little bit farther back because I know where Derek wants to go. Derek's a big pre-war car kind of guy in that, no matter what his job says about him. But what was your first car, bud? What, what got you? Is that what started to light this fire or did you have, um, you know, a, a Morris Minor or something? Well, just like many of us uh, caught the car bug when I was a teenager, my dad bought a 67 high-performance Mustang, and that's what I actually learned to drive on. So I was hooked from the first time I got behind the wheel. Um, After high school, I got a 68 Camaro and went on from there to have more American muscle and uh, a lot of uh, exotic cars for the street. Um, I was doing some amateur racing in my 20s, mostly autocrossing um, at the national level. And my wife decided to buy me a four-day racing school at Bondurant for my birthday. And uh, as soon as I got from the race-prepared Mustangs into the open-wheel cars, I was absolutely hooked on the open-wheel cars. We, I think they were just little Formula Fords, but being out there in the Airstream and having a little bit more grip just totally transformed my world. And I said, I've got to do this. It took about a year or two off to save some money and have been racing open-wheel ever since. 
So, you know, I mean, where I was going to go with my question after, you know, John kind of stole my initial question uh, <laughs> was, you know, you, you talk about, you know, growing up with the muscle cars and, you know, inter- that's kind of where you got introduced with this, the car bug, you know, got bit by that, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, you had some different cars and, you know, I kind of started in that world as well. I grew up, as many of our listeners know, my first car was a 1974 Pontiac GTO. Eventually got, uh, fell much more in love with early brass era, horseless carriage, classic era cars, just for many reasons. You know, you mentioned the kind of that first experience with an open wheel race car after your wife bought you the driving school lessons. Kind of curious, I guess, for me, you know, how long had you been a car guy? You know, we don't have to talk age or anything before you started kind of transitioning into a new passion for a different type of automobile. The open wheel racing for me started in my early 30s. That's a little bit late to be starting. And I didn't grow up with go-karts and all that kind of stuff. So certainly compared to a lot of racers today, I feel like I'm at a historical disadvantage. But on the flip side, I managed to get into some pretty quick machinery uh, within a few years. And um, I think being in faster cars just develops your skills a little bit more quickly. I've been racing Formula One cars since uh, about 1993, so 25, 26 years now. Getting behind those very high horsepower machines with lots of downforce and grippy, slick tires uh, forces you to learn racecraft pretty quickly. And I've moved from 70s and 80s era Formula One machines to what I would call a modern era Formula One with my uh, 2003 uh, ex Rubens Barrichello Ferrari. Uh, it's called an F2003 GA. Uh, it's a little over a thousand pounds. It's got almost a thousand horsepower. So approaching that magical one-to-one ratio. And that car is an absolute rocket ship. So working up the ladder from you know smaller open wheel cars up to this uh, amazing modern era Formula One car has taken me a bit of time to, to master. But uh, being there now, I just feel super comfortable in the car and seem to go pretty quickly. Yeah, that uh, that's really fantastic. I, I and John, you can jump in here too. But I, I always find it interesting whenever we sit around and talk about cars, and and in a lot of cases, car people, you know, car car guys, car gals, we all kind of have this somewhat transformational story where we start sometimes in one interest and we move to another. And I think you touched on something really interesting there, because for me, uh, you know, the kind of transformation to the early cars, the horseless carriage, brass hair, all that was the the challenge that they posed in in understanding how to drive them, learning how to drive them with no similarities between a lot of cars. You know, shifting is different in many early cars. You know, it was all about the challenge of of learning something new. And it kind of sounds like that's what some of it was for you with the open wheel racers, the formula cars was that challenge of, you know, learning how to drive a high power car on a track, learning how to take a racing line and do all that. So yeah, I just, I I find that very interesting when, when you start talking to different people, even though we're kind of diverging in different directions of the car collecting world, it always seems to revolve sometimes around a very similar interest in a challenge or something within the car we're interested in. Yeah. For me, you know, just the open wheels seemed 
super fast, and I'd been following Formula One since I was a teenager, and actually saw a number of Formula races, Formula One races when I was quite young. So for me, the ultimate racing machine was Formula One. It's sort of what I always thought would be, you know, the pinnacle of of uh, motorsports, and for a, just a, a normal guy to be able to get into a Formula One machine and drive it well was just sort of a dream beyond my wildest dreams. So as I was progressing through the Formula ranks, Formula One was sort of what I always uh, wanted to be able to do. I I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it professionally. I actually had a shot at the IndyCars at one point, and uh, it was at a time where the U.S. was falling into recession, and my company that I was with wanted me to move to Singapore to grow the Asian business, and I was at a crossroads of either waiting in the States until money came back to race or stay with the business and keep going and come back to the States to race, you know, several times a year. And I chose that path, probably the more conservative path, but it certainly put me out of contention for an IndyCar ride and also obviously for a Formula One ride. So doing this now as an amateur is uh, about as close to that dream as I could have uh, could have ever gotten. It just seems... I mean, you've you've reached the pinnacle, and I I'll totally agree with you that F one. I mean, I don't think there's a guy on a Sunday morning that there's an F one race that doesn't you know that that's the ultimate goal for just about every driver, even current IndyCar drivers, kind of want to go. You know, they've all moved and tried F one, and I think just recently uh, with Alonzo, I believe now 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 some of the F one guys are coming coming and trying Indy cars in their retirement. I guess that's what amazes me. You you know I, I know a lot of people get uh, people that race you know sixties era, you know Lotus and Ferrari F one cars like that or Lotus eighteen Formula Juniors and that. I mean, when do you? What was the? I guess, what was that turning point when you woke up? I guess it goes back. I heard an interview with Dan Snyder many years ago when they asked him, how did you know when you were rich? And he said, when I bought my first jet. How did you, <laughs> how, did, how did you wake up one morning and all of a sudden go, I'm going to buy a Formula One car and we're going to do it? And what was that first Formula One car you, you got? Well, I was, um, as I said, I was, I was racing um, open wheel cars. I was actually in a, a couple of spec series and then Formula Atlantic. And I had a Lotus 47, which is the racing version of the Lotus Europa. It was actually raced at Le Mans. So it's a you know closed cockpit, two seat car. And I never felt comfortable in that car. And I think it was because I'd gotten used to you know, having some wings and slicks and, um, you know, just being able to go a whole lot quicker than that car was capable of. And I talked to a car broker friend of mine who agreed to market the car and he came back to me and he said, hey, I have an idea for you. I know you're racing open wheel cars. Um, I think I have a deal for your Lotus 47 if you're willing to take a Formula One car and trade. And I said, tell me more. And it was a 1979 Ensign that had been driven by Derek Daly. And I bought that car and we did the swap in 1991, I believe. And it took me a year or two to find somebody to be able to run that car for me, um, you know, from uh, as a mechanic. And we put it on the racing circuit and have not quit yet. I've still got that car. And in fact, I drove it in six or seven events last year. So I've had that car forever. And it's just a my old workhorse. It does pretty well. It's not as quick as the Lotus and the Williams, but... Um, I still have a 40% podium rate in that car across its 20, 
six years that I've owned it. I think that I'm very familiar with the 47. I've had opportunity to drive a 47, not in race condition. And I understand what you mean by, I want to say, claustrophobic and kind of scary. I guess that's an interesting story. And in then to, I guess, for a collector to own a car 30 years is really pushing it and to actually have one and race it be a hard one possibly to say goodbye to. And then you've just you're kind of known a little bit, I think, in uh, social media and I think some of your profile pictures, um, at least on, you know, your public pages, the ones for your fans, are that Rubens Barrichello car. Or did you have a different or a slightly, I want to say, a year or two older Ferrari F1 car before you did swap that? Or is that the one that I've I've always known? Nope, you're you're absolutely right. I've actually had uh, three Ferrari Formula One cars. So I've got the 2003 uh, today. I had a 1997 Ferrari F310B that had been driven by Schumacher and Irvine, and that car was was my first introduction to paddle shifters and carbon brakes. The car was very quick. It had about 700 horsepower and was you know to me just it seems like double the speed compared to the 70s and 80s era Formula One cars. Uh, and then to go from 700 horsepower to you know, about 950 was yet another huge leap. I have the Ensign still that, that uh, I mentioned, but I also have still a Ferrari 312T5 that was driven by both Jill Villeneuve and Jody Schechter. Jody Schechter was the champion in 79, and this car is a 1980. And I've had that car since about 95, 96, and um, still have that, but I'm just getting ready to, as painful as it is, I'm just getting ready to put that up for sale. We had an episode many moons ago talking about storage space and where to put them, and I guess I can understand that. If I may ask and tell me to edit this out if it would get you in trouble, I'm assuming the uh, the 2003 GA is probably under the uh, the Ferrari program where they maintain it and house it for you in that, or do you actually keep that in your in your garage or warehouse or however you store your cars? I usually leave it in in Italy with the factory, and it is I, I do run it in the Ferrari F1 Clienti program, and I leave it with them primarily because most of the events we do are over in Europe. Uh, we bring that car to North America once a year, and then all the rest of the events are either in Europe or Asia. So we just let it go back to Europe and drive the events over there. So it's a convenience issue more than anything else for it to stay with the factory. And they provide all of the technical support to be able to run the car. So we show up and there's a dozen mechanics on my car alone, plus telemetry people, tire people, et cetera. It's a huge production to be able to run these machines. And um, it's it's been a phenomenal program. I started in that program when I bought the 97F 310B. So I bought that in 2008. So I've been in that Ferrari program now. This will be my uh, 11th year, I guess. And it's it's really been a great way and in fact the only way to be able to run those uh, you know, very complicated machines. The older car, the 1980 um, 312T5 that I have, I run through my race shop in California with the guys that I've been with for over 20 years. And they take care of both that car and my end time. Um, and that's because those cars were built in the era where the real mechanics could work on them. So no complicated electronics. It's a 
Hewland gearbox and Cosworth DFV in the Ensign and Ferrari gearbox and Ferrari flat 12 in the uh, 312 T5. And those are all things that, you know, normal mechanics, uh, normal race mechanics can uh, you know, work on and prepare and, and keep going. So we run that those two cars in a North American Formula One race series, and then we run the F2003 with the Clienti program, primarily um, in what I would call exhibition events. We, we go out and they will have anywhere between 10 and 20 Ferrari Formula One cars, and so it's quite a spectacular show for everybody that shows up. I've always been interested in F1 cars, not to the point where I know a whole lot about them. It's one of the most extreme types of racing there are. So I got, I kind of got two questions. One, I read an article on you on, uh, it was on Turnology. So I'm reading an article and it's like, it's real quick. You go to the Bondurant racing school and then bam, <laughs> you're running, you're running like F1 cars. So one, what was it like making that quick of a turnaround from Bondurant racing school to driving an open wheel paddle shifted F1 car? And then my second question is, you don't see F1 cars for sale. So in, in the back of my mind, and, and what would like the one that you're getting ready to part ways with, what would a car like that sell for? Those are my two questions that I'm I'm very interested in knowing. Sure. The, well, the, the first one, first question, you know, moving from the little Formula Fords and Bondurant that were probably... I don't know, 100, barely 100 horsepower, most likely, maybe a little bit more. You know, they still felt really quick to me. And then I raced in a spec series where we had about 200 horsepower. Then the Atlantics were about 300 and something horsepower. And then the 70s and 80s era Formula One cars were 500 horsepower. And then the F310B was over 700 horsepower. So, you know, it's it's every step I took, it seemed to add about 50% to the horsepower. And those are pretty big steps to take, especially when you've got lots of aero and grippy tires all along the way. I'll tell you, when I moved from Formula Atlantic, which is a pretty respectable series, to take my first laps in my Formula One car, it took me about two or three laps before I could put my foot all the way to the floor, even on the straights. Wow. It was literally just that quick. You know, even the... 70s and 80s era Formula One cars will go zero to 100 in about three and a half seconds. So they're pretty quick, pretty quick machines. You know, then you double that horsepower in the 2003, and it's it's just like hanging onto a rocket. So that's you know that's something that um, I transitioned over about five years um, into the 500 horsepower car, and then it was another. 10 years to 12 years before I moved into the 97 car and then another three or four years before I got the 03 car. So every stage, enough time to be able to get comfortable and start itching for a little bit more, I guess. <laughs> that's impressive though. That's, that's impressive to, mm-hmm. to move up like that. And, and, you know, regarding your second question, yeah, you, you know, there are, there, there are Formula One cars in the market. They're not very many, and they're they're a little hard to find. But for those of us that are racing these things, we tend to know, you know, where they are and when they come up, whose they were, and what shape they're in, and that sort of thing. There's a large variation in price, and it all depends on the mark and the history. So my Ensign, it was raced in 1979. It failed to qualify more than three quarters of the time. That was in the era when they had 
more cars than spots on the grid. And when it did qualify, it failed to finish all but once. And so it's a little dot point in history. And that car today is probably worth about 400000 I would say, since it's, you know, race ready and it's got a fabulous race history with, you know, with me behind the wheel. The Ferrari, one year newer, the F, uh, the 312 T5 uh, was raced in five races. I'm sorry, in eight races in the 1980 season. No wins. That was a year that Ferrari got swamped by their rivals and they went from winning the championship to being a mid-pack player. But it's a Ferrari and it's got famous people that drove it and it's worth uh, in the market today about three million. So that's a pretty big spread from 400,000 to three million, almost a tenfold difference in price. Whoa. What amazes me is that, <laughs> yeah, it, it, that a, a '79 model F1 car is still worth four hundred thousand. It's awesome that it is, um, but I, I that was probably about double what I would think. Uh, but I'm in the hot rod industry, you know. I'm not in the racing side of things at all. I don't know why it surprised me. It probably shouldn't have, but that's uh, that's why we don't see. Uh, F1 parts in the hot rod industry right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, and and my my ensign, like I said, is, you know, low, near the lower end of the spectrum. Um, right. The Williams run for maybe a, a million. Um, Andretti's championship winning Lotus uh, from 1978 is probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe a million and a half or something like that. You nice. know, so there are some really valuable machines out there. But most of the ones that were from drivers you haven't heard a whole lot about or from teams that, you know, were sort of in the middle of the pack and down. Those are, you know, those are going to be in the four, five, six, seven hundred thousand range, which still is a lot of money. But there's a race series here and there's a race series in Europe actually organized by the same umbrella organization. And we have guys that are going back and forth across the Atlantic and flying cars back and forth and racing in both series. And so there's a really great set of opportunities to drive these things and that adds to their value if you can't do anything with them but some random track day they're not going to be worth it anywhere near as much right all right so so my question is i i i gotta jump in here because we're talking about uh, the value of these cars kind of everything that you've got what is a guy like like you bud what is your everyday go out to the garage get in a car and drive on the street car i got i gotta know if you're driving all these on the track what are you driving on a daily basis well i should probably say it depends on the day but my you know here we are in the winter time my winter car is a uh, porsche 911 c4 cabriolet and the c4 means it's all-wheel drive so i use that as my winter car and yet it's it's got the convertible top, so I can use that in the summer as well. So it's my kind of all-around grocery getter, I would say. And then I'm, I've been a Ferrari guy since I was 26. So I have three different road Ferraris and a fourth one on the way. And those are, you know, I would say a little more for special occasions. I, I, I don't put tons and tons of miles on those cars, but every time I get in them, I can't stop smiling for days. They're just fantastic machines to drive. My wife drives a Maserati Ghibli. I have a Aston Martin Vantage that I drive during the 
no salt on the road months of the year. And then a couple older muscle cars. I have a 66 Shelby GT350, which reminds me a lot of the 67 Mustang that I learned to drive on. And then uh, you'll be pleased to know I have a 67 big block Corvette convertible. So definitely I'm in the Corvette fold as well. And it's my wife's favorite old car for us to tool around in. See, I I knew he was a smart man. I I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners of the podcast know I I seem to know a lot of these car guys, and his garage sounds a lot like some of the guys I have lunch with on Saturdays. And that there's a couple of Ferraris, there's an older Corvette, and you drive a Porsche daily. And that's that's one thing I've always said about even when I had a Porsche, I liked having the car, but it wasn't vis- visceral enough for me. But that is just your everyday quote. Not exotic, but exotic. I mean, that's just a wonderful car, and I know you're in the climate in that, and the C4S just makes sense for where you're at because of the—I used to live up that way, and matter of fact, uh, my ex-wife doesn't live that far from you, actually, one community over. Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with uh, your, the winter winter time in that area. Yeah, your, your point is absolutely right. The Porsche does everything you want it to do. It handles well, it steers quickly, great acceleration, it's very reliable, it's engineered incredibly well. I get no passionate excitement out of driving that car. It really, to me, is a you know a, a very, very quick daily driver. But if I jump in my 599 GTO with the front engine V12 or my 458 Speciale or something, you know, you're bombarded with all these great mechanical sounds and whining from the engine and the gearbox and the exhaust makes a marvelous sound and you know the great smell of the leather and all of a sudden you know every bit of your senses except for your tongue is uh is working overtime and maybe that would too if you just sort of stuck your tongue out in the air and grabbed a little bit of the exhaust fumes i don't know but uh that car just those, those kinds of cars just absolutely get me going and like i said i've owned ferrari since i was 26 and i just every single one of them i've absolutely loved I'm going to jump back a little bit in the conversation, and it's kind of that topic that I said to you. You know, you talk, we're talking about 2003 GA, and that, you know, there's a team of people that take care of this car for you, and, you know, they're employed by the factory, and that's what it takes to anything modern F1. Uh, you know, I think anything past about 2000, or excuse me, 92, 93, you've got to have a a team of mechanics and a barrage of computers. They're like operating a space shuttle. Can you tell us what it's like driving that spacecraft? You know, pick a, I want to say kind of pick a track or something and tell us something that maybe you can compare it. You know, none of, I don't think many of our listeners could say, okay, I, I know what it's like driving an ensign Formula One car, but some of them have seen some tracks, uh, you know, around the country, whether it be Road Atlanta or Montreal, Laguna Seca. Can you kind of compare a little bit of driving this computerized, state-of-the-art machine to, I guess, more primitive hardware? Sure. Well, you know, if uh, my 70s-slash-80s era Formula One car seems you know, incredibly quick to most people, it feels absolutely primitive compared to the O3. So let's put them both at Laguna Seca, just as an example. So the, you know, the 79 Ensign or the 80 Ferrari 312 T5 will probably tour that track 
in race trim around a minute 22, let's say, you know, which is a you know, very, very quick lap compared to almost anything else that would be out there. At the end of the front straight, I'm probably going, I think, about 175-ish, you know, which is a pretty good speed to be carrying down that uh, down that straight. Um, the brakes are uh, aluminum, and so you've, you know, aluminum rotors, so you've got braking distance, probably have to brake at the three mark uh, at the end of that straight. And so you've got great acceleration on that straight up to 100-something, 170-something top speed, hit the brakes at marker three, down to, I guess it's about 40 in that 180-degree hairpin, and then you continue on. The F2003, we did 197 at the end of that straight, and we got all the way down to the one marker before putting on the brakes for that very same turn. Those brakes are carbon fiber or carbon carbon, and they just absolutely stop. Those are the ones that glow red hot when you see them in the, you know, in the Formula One races on TV. And they run at a thousand degrees C. But when you put your foot on the brakes, they absolutely grip and stop. In fact, every single driver, even the professional drivers that are driven in all different kinds of series or the Formula One drivers from the 80s or 90s, when they get into a modern era Formula One car for a newspaper or magazine article or something like that, or television special, they always remark about the brakes and how grippy the brakes are. They're just absolutely unbelievable. We do 5Gs under braking, and at 5Gs, Basically, your eyeballs get so heavy that they start to bulge out of your eyes, uh, eye sockets, and your eyes start to water. For me, under those braking loads, with my eyes watering, I've got tears running down my face. When I hit the brakes, those tears splash onto my visor. So it's that kind of violent force on your eyes, and literally the you know the acceleration snaps those uh, tears onto the visor so it's it's very very hard to uh, to describe in any way other than that except to talk about g-forces right so if i took you in my street ferrari and we run on, went around a corner as quickly as i could we'd probably generate about one g and the way to think about a g most of your listeners are probably pretty familiar with g's right so yeah, a helmet and head together weigh about eight pounds I'm sorry, about um, 14 pounds. Your head's about eight, and the helmet's going to be another five or six, depending upon what kind of helmet it is. So let's say 14 pounds. It's like an adult, just about an adult weight bowling ball. So if we're cornering my Ferrari, and you're you know, being pushed against the door, your head is being pulled to the side by the weight of about one bowling ball attached to the top of your head. When we corner in the F2003, we are cornering at four and a half G's. So multiply that 14 by four and a half, and you've got uh, G forces of like 60 pounds or something, more than 60 pounds, pulling our head and neck to the side. And that kind of force is absolutely incredible. It's why you see all the F1 guys have necks that look like linebackers, uh, because you've got to be able to keep your head up left and right and forward and back against those g-forces and that to me is the most incredible difference the the 1979 or 80 car will do three and a half to four g's so it's still pretty close but believe it or not that extra you know half to to full g makes a huge difference in the neck loads i'm gonna be rude here i'm sorry bud and if i'm not mistaken i'm sitting here i'm i'm 47 years old and i'm going i don't know if 
I could take that. And if I'm not mistaken, you're in your early or mid sixties or so. And yep. you probably, I don't think I'd want to get into a bar fight with you. I'd <laughs> <laughs> be okay as long as I could headbutt you, but I'm not sure about anything else. But yeah, I actually, when I go to the gym, I bring a helmet with me and I have um, an old one that I put a couple of O-rings at the temples and I'll go to the machine that most people would use for doing cap- you know, with the cables that you use for fly uh, exercises and I'll attach those straps to my helmet and you know, slam a bunch of weight on there and just do left and right and left and right and left and right and forward and back and uh, you know, that's how I have to work out my head because there's nothing else in the gym that is going to come close to being able to give me that kind of weight. In the old days, I'd lay on a bench with like a big 45 pound plate trying to balance it on my ear. And that was really stupid. So finally devised this thing with a helmet. It's been great ever since. I'm, I'm just sitting here in amazement that your eyes tear up and the tears come off your visor, off your eyes and smack the inside of your visor. I mean, I've, I've been in some pretty fast, drag racing cars and i felt some pretty hard g's to me i you know accelerating g is a lot different than a stopping g because it's it's the opposite force of what it should be you know and um i'm just sitting here i'm just i'm still trying to wrap my head around that uh just wow yeah it's pretty funny because you know your natural inclination is to take a, a hand and try and wipe the outside of the visor. I learned really yeah. quickly. It wasn't wet on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I can imagine. Oh Lord. You know, you did the, as Will said, the very good explanation of the G's in that 2003 car. If I remember correctly, and I was chatting with a racer buddy and letting him know about this interview, I was kind of excited about it. And he reminded me that last year, while you weren't the driver, you brought in a hired gun and your car set the uh, lap record at Road Atlanta, which being, you know, a Southeast based podcast, a lot of our listeners are in that area. Can you give us at least the specs? I can't remember how fast, but did you guys not beat that record by a couple of seconds? And anybody at races knows a couple of seconds is, you know, a world. Yes, we um, we we've had this car since 2011. So we brought it to North America in 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I'm trying to think. We may have skipped a year or two, but we've we've had it in North America. I think six or seven times, and we have broken the track record at every place we've been and still hold that record except for one. So that's how quick the car is. And that's how quick I and or the Ferrari test driver, Mark Janay are. So Mark is part of the Formula One Cliente program. He's the factory test driver. He's my driving coach and we'll spend a half an hour on the track and then an hour going over the telemetry and the video to really understand what to do differently in my driving style and setup. And between the two of us, we've got these uh, multiple track records here in the States. Uh, In 11, we broke the track record at Sonoma, which I hold. Uh, In 12, we both got under the track record at Laguna, but we had one set of softs available 
um, the final Sunday morning, and I just told him he should take it. And so he got the outright fastest lap ever at that track. Uh, the next year, we went to Mont Tremblant, and I broke the track record there. Uh, the next year, we went to NOLA Motorsports Park, New Orleans, where the IndyCar drivers had driven in the spring. And I think their qualifying lap was a 121. I think Montoya said it. And we beat that and got to 118. That was one that Janae did. Um, then we went to Homestead, and I broke the record there, and my engine blew up, and one of my competitors in a 2004 nipped it from me so i don't hold that one i did break it for the day and then at road atlanta i think the fastest lap before we were there last year was about a 106 in one of the lmp type cars and we did a 101 something i got i i got under the 106 as well but uh janae took it down to 101 he and i tend to go back and forth and keep trading off to see who can who can be the quickest? And he usually does nip me by just a bit. And on that day, he had, you know, he had raced uh, 24 hour races there at road Atlanta. And I had only driven there once in my life. So for me to get under the track record, I felt great. And for him to absolutely smash it felt even better. So that's, you know, that's pretty good for an old guy and an old car. And we feel very proud of what we've done here in North America. Um, I don't really know the tracks that well in Europe. Uh, I do know the first time I drove at Silverstone, it quickly became one of my favorite tracks in Europe, that and Spa, of course. But uh, we drove Silverstone and it was actually dry. And that was, I think my first time there was in 2012 or 2013. And I would have been 16th on the Formula One grid for my first weekend ever at that track. So that I felt pretty good about that too. You're definitely uh, no slouch. I mean, I, I knew I knew about the Road Atlanta one. I didn't know the the, the history of track records and track records. Uh, I know you're very successful. Like I can say I watch, I follow you on Facebook and see your wins and where you're at. One one day I'll get to the same track that you're at with my new schedule. We. I should be attending more vintage racing, so I should be able to catch up to you. Or next time I'm in D.C., I might see if you're in town. And Sure, that'd be great. And, you know, we also race, you know, at uh, professional events as sort of the warm-up band. We'll be racing at the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin again this year. That's a great event to come out to, and you get to see us and the real guys. Yeah, I was going to say, I know... Um I can't think of his first name all of a sudden. Uh, Rogogo, you know, Paul, Paul, yeah, Paul. Paul, Paul always wants me to go out, or a couple of his guys always want me to go out that way. So this might be a year that I actually go to the F1 race in Austin. I kind of boycotted it. I was upset when they left Indy, but that's just me and my pettiness. Yeah, well, Paul runs, he owns that great Lotus 79 that um, Doc Bundy drives for him. Doc is a phenomenal driver. He and I have had a lot of good races together, and uh, his machine is phenomenal. Actually, all the cars that we bring out are really fantastic. We usually have a grid at the F1 race of between 25 and 30 cars. So we'll have more more cars on the grid than the, the modern guys, um, and our cars make really good noise, and so we're always always happy to be out there and you know, make that connection for the fans between the olden days and today. I always prefer the vintage stuff, but 
that that's kind of me, mm-hmm. and I think Derek's the same way, and I think even Will, and this is a podcast about the collector car and classic car hobby, so we just kind of fit right in there. Do you have any other questions, guys, for Bud? Or otherwise, you know, we've had him on the phone for pushing an hour, and he's a very busy man. And I could I could ask a million questions, but I got I got my two biggest questions that uh, I really only had one, and then he we started talking about value, and uh, I, I'm I'm good, yeah, yeah. I did, you know, I mean, hopefully one day, you know, Bud will want to come out to the, uh, you know motorsports park here at the national corvette museum with one of his cars and show us what what it can do around our track so might as well get that record too (laughs) might as well (laughs) why not (laughs) you know it's interesting if ferrari is you know very happy to run this program all around the world but i asked one time because i had some people at the ferrari club of america ask me if if we could bring that car out to the national meet and they, you know, they hold it places like Watkins Glen and mid Ohio and, and all that. And they said, you know, could you just bring your car out and, and run it, you know, just some demonstration laps. So I checked with the factory and, and they just basically shook their head and said, you really wouldn't want to do that. You know, for us to have to fly a dozen guys over, you know, plus all the equipment and the tires and the computers and, and on and on and on. And it's like, it's like it, it would, it would cost us, way more money than you would ever want to pay. You know, when when we do it with them as part of their program, they actually use it as an apprentice opportunity to train up the young guys who are coming through their mechanics program and they get to learn on the uh, XX cars and the Formula One cars and they do all the mechanics stuff. And, and with the F1 cars, you know, we've got the tire warmers and the front and rear jacks and the you know, the guy with the starter and, you know, all, all those guys. So there's a dozen guys around the car. And just like this whole orchestrated you thing, thing you see on TV, you know, with the modern guys, you know, the, the guy wave in the front waves his hand, the tire warmers come off, the jacks go down and, you know, the car takes off and they're, tr- they're using the, the best of those guys to move up to the, you know, the professional formula one team and the guys that get burned out with nine or 10 months on the road, um, come down and they're the masters that those apprentices learn from. So the factory is very, very happy to do that program for, for us and to demonstrate the cars and give their guys good training, but to do it as a one-off would just be ridiculous. It'd be like buying a, uh, it'd be more than buying a, a, a V12 street Ferrari just for a weekend, and it's kind of crazy. I think, uh, in, in all respect to your time in that, but like Will said, we could probably sit here and chat for hours. But I think if it's okay with you, unless you, you've got more time you want to give us, we'll uh, say goodnight for t- this evening, and maybe we'll invite you back in a couple of months or as the season goes, or like I say, if we cross paths. Um, we'll get a couple of clips from you. And uh, I mean, and this has been a great interview and uh, I think you've, you've enlightened me tremendously. And I, I look forward to listening back and editing this one. Great. Well, it's been my pleasure to be with you guys. And if you do make it out to one of our uh, North American races with the vintage cars, um, you know, I know that this is a podcast and not a, you know, a video cast, but we can certainly walk through the paddock and talk to your listeners about, the different eras of the Formula One and the differences you can uh, see in the technology and all that sort of stuff. It's usually great a, a great walk through, um, you know, 10 or 15 years of Formula One history. Great cars, great drivers, great stories. 
Uh, we're going to start integrating a little bit more video, at least for f- our Facebook and YouTube channels. We'll we'll look at that, and I'll have to, like I said, sit down and look at my schedule and see where I'm going to be. And I hope we do cross paths. Sounds like good fun. I don't I don't care what Will says. I think one of the trained historians on the podcast should be the one to walk down and and talk about the history of racing. Hey hey uh, hey! Easy there, Turbo. <laughs> These aren't brass era cars. These are hot rods. All right. So you can you can keep your brass era butt at home and me and the sports car guy will take care of that. <laughs> I'm gonna have to see if we can find more than enough room for one person in the paddock to join us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it was great talking to you. Great to yeah, talk pleasure. to you guys and uh, we'll catch up with you again. Awesome. Thank you. Sounds great. Thanks again, bud. Thanks. Sure. Good night. Thanks guys. So, so the one thing I I learned is um, I, before the interview, I did not believe that I could ever own a, a, you know, open wheel race car that has any history. Now I know that I, (laughs) Holy I figured I'm sitting here thinking a daggum eighties model F one car, you know, 75, $80,000, you know, wow. Woo! Well, I thought we were going to be able to run with that and keep it recording, but, you know, Will had to go and ruin the family-friendly environment of this conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to go ahead and keep running with that, and I'll figure out ways. F1 I, sounds. I, I, I do. I think Bud might be one of our best guests. I mean, he, he's got tough competition. We had record number of downloads off of Eric and Mopars last week. I don't think the Ferrari people will disappoint us. but Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Andy Pilgrim had some good downloads, didn't he? Yes, he did. Bud's a little bit Bud's a little bit more active on social media, too. He's a great guy, and I really thank him. He's an extremely, extremely busy man. I say I'm just kind of still in amazement of the, <laughs> the conversation there. I mean, it, it was good, and I'm serious. I'm going to f- figure out a way. I was boycotting uh, the Austin F1 race, but I might have to look at seeing what I can do to get out there, at, le- at least to see the vintage stuff. Yeah, that would be that would be awesome. Oh. It's later in the year, right? Uh, yeah, that's usually in September or October. What's that be the weekend of our car show? <laughs> We've taken over the Hoax Bluff car show again. Um, I think you, I remember you telling me that. I was going to try to look up the date here on the computer. There goes the Hoax Bluff car show. (laughs) (laughs) The crazy thing is it was really good, and then we gave it to the Lions Club, and it kind of went downhill. October 31st through November 3rd will be the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, Texas. What was it again? October 31st through November 3rd that weekend. Oh, no, no, we're good. This is the uh, last weekend, the last Saturday in September, I think, is when we're doing this. I think that was a pretty good show for this evening, or generic time of the day, as they say on some podcasts and whenever you're listening to this. So we'll go ahead and wrap up. Unless anybody's got anything else to say about that conversation with Bud? Hey, no, i got to get back to work. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to figure out how to go make a cool three and a half million and <laughs> go have some fun. Hey, maybe, we need to, maybe we need to talk to Tony again. I'd be, I'd be happy with one of those uh, $400,000 jobs. Well, that that that's what uh, Derek's talking about because it, remember buying the car is the cheap thing, racing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, I was buying the cheap car and just having money to go racing. <laughs> I just I just want to buy the car and look at it and 
drive it up down the driveway every once in a while and make some parts that kind of look like F1 parts, you know, hang on my wall. All right, cool. I'm going to go get back to wait. Okay, I'm out of here. All right, I'm going to go do something now. <laughs>